Welcome to CentCast, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters. Coming to you from Tampa Bay, Florida, with your host, Joe Buccino. Happy New Year, Joe. I'm going to cut you off a little bit here because we're recording it at the New Year, January 2023, but people aren't going to listen to this until like February. Happy Valentine's Day? Yeah, happy pre-Valentine's Day. Happy pre-Valentine's Day. So, episode two, huh? Well, first of all, introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is Joe Crespo. Joe Buccino, how are you? And uh, welcome to episode two of CentCast, the official podcast of U.S. Central Command. The premier warfighting headquarters. The premier warfighting headquarters, and this is episode two. The title of this episode is Birth. So, in the first episode, you talked about formation of CENTCOM, and you've entitled this one Birth. So, explain today, if you have uh, a chance, what we're talking about birth and formation of, of CENTCOM. We alluded to it on the first episode. Today, we're really going to get into it, really, the, the story of the creation of CENTCOM, the concept of this command focused on the Middle East. It's a fascinating story. I mean, I'm obviously vaguely familiar with it, not as much in depth as you are, but it's a fascinating story that has big personalities, critical moments in history, and perhaps planning for World War III. Yeah, all of the main players in American national security in the late 1970s and the early 1980s are part of this story. Big decisions made by the Department of Defense, by our nation's leaders. And you're talking about history. Yeah. And for those of you listening, I can see over in Joe's section of the table, he has quite a bit of references. One book is about 1,200 pages. Yeah, let's get into it because that is important for folks listening to this to understand how we derive this material. The first reference is this monster book here that I can yep. crack your skull with if I hit you with it. Not that I would do that. No, no, for sure. But it is at least 1,200 pages. Yeah, uh, this, is, I can tell. this is The Prize by Daniel Juergen. The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. This is a 1990 book. This is the story on global oil. And uh, Daniel Juergen is the foremost expert on this, on this subject, really an authority on energy and world affairs. He comes on uh, CNBC. CNN comes on news shows all the time to talk about this matter. But this is, this is a history, 1990 book, and really I used kind of the, the final third of this okay. book. What else you got? Andrew Scott Cooper, the book is called The Fall of Heaven. That is uh, about the Iranian hostage crisis, the Iranian revolution, the end of the Shah's dynasty. Then we've got the Iran-Iraq War, a military and strategic history by a fellow named Kevin Woods. John Gazavina, that's this book right here. It's America and Iran, a history, 1720 to the present. Really, this is the, the almost the final word on, on America's relationship with Iran. Uh, rich, fascinating history, very relevant today. But, of course, we don't go through all that history, so I only use the middle portion of this book. There's actually only two chapters of this book that I use okay. for, for this. Right. 1720 is a long time. Casper Weinberger, Secretary of Defense at the time these decisions were made. His book, Fighting for Peace, Seven Critical Years in the Pentagon. Uh, we use that one. Next, a book called The Army of Excellence, The Develop of the 1980s Army by U.S. Army historian John Ramju. John Ramju did a lot of important work around the formation of military doctrine in the 1980s and really focusing on the Army, but he does cover the formation of Central Command. He died of cancer this past June. Oh, wow. Sorry to hear. Yeah, and uh, re- he was an important Army historian. This morning, you and I raise our coffee mugs to right. John Ramju. John Ramju. Um, I never met the man, but for another project I was working on years ago in Fort Bragg, I exchanged emails with him. 
and sad uh, to see him go, but you know, his work lives on. Right, his legacy is still captured for Army and then for others in the Joint Service as well. Okay, the main document I use for this is published by the Joint History Office. It was published in 2013. The History of the Unified Command Plan, there's two short chapters that have a lot of information okay. on this subject. And then there's a number of other documents from the Center for Military History. Okay, last one. Rick Perlstein, The Invisible Bridge. This is really about uh, Ronald Reagan and it's about what Ronald Reagan learned from the Nixon administration and from Nixon, from observing uh, Nixon in the 1970s, and we'll talk about that. So you, you briefly mentioned the Iran-Iraq war. Mm -hmm. it, it took me back to the Iranian hostage crisis, which yeah. I know was one of the key moments of CENTCOM history. Yeah. Right? But you, you kind of want to go... We should probably start there. You could start this in, in World War II, and, and we are going to have an expert... Uh, uh, historian Dr. Scotty Dawson on next episode to talk about, you know, kind of World War II, that, that period. But for this, yes, I think the Iran hostage crisis is maybe kind of the start of our story. But let's set the table a little bit on that. Okay. Maybe take two steps back to the Nixon administration. Nixon administration. So you, you're a huge Nixon guy. There's a lot in that period and under his administration that relates to what we're talking about. But yes, um, so specifically, in, in, in what period of the Nixon administration? Let's just go to one period, one okay. event. Okay, the oil crisis, sometimes called the oil embargo, sometimes called the oil shock. Okay, 1973, after the Arab-Israeli war, oil-producing states in the Persian Gulf raised prices to punish the U.S. and other Western countries for allowing Israel to occupy former Arab lands, really for supporting Israel in the Arab-Israeli war. We're talking about OPEC, led by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. OPEC instituted this oil embargo. At the time, the OPEC countries controlled 80% of the world's exported oil. Yikes there. I got to do some reading. Uh, probably going to lend me some of those books. Yikes is right. That's, that's an appropriate <laughs> reaction, my friend, because it was, it was a disaster for Nixon. It introduced oil shock. The embargo ceased U.S. oil imports from participating OPEC nations. It began a series of production cuts that altered the world price of oil. Think about it this way. Let's, let's quantify it a little okay. bit here. These cuts nearly quadrupled the price of oil from $2.90 a barrel before the embargo to $11.65 a barrel in January 1974. Quadrupled it. The average U.S. retail price of a gallon of regular gas rose 43% from 38.5 cents, 38 cents in May 1973 to 55.1 cents in June 1974. Those still seem like pretty good prices. But okay. Right, I know, <laughs> compared to today, but okay. you can imagine back then, it's almost a 50% increase. And, and it, it, was, it was terror. State governments, the, the governors of, of states throughout the country asked citizens not to put up Christmas lights because it would consume too much, too much gas. Oregon banned Christmas and commercial lighting altogether. The state of Oregon. The state day. of Oregon. Politicians called for a national gasoline rationing. Think about this, Nixon asked the country as a patriotic duty he asked gasoline re retailers to voluntarily not sell gasoline on Saturday nights or Sundays. Jeez. They didn't all comply, but most of them did. Right. You can imagine hear us living in Tampa yeah. with the hurricane or yeah. any other natural disaster, the lines of these gas stations. And this was months. Right. Months and months and months of, of just this long lines of motors. inflation. Yeah. The longliner motorists wanted to fill up their cars. And so we have a friend of ours, another guy who has a rich, textured voice like you do. Thank you, thank you. A fellow named Will Laney. You met, you just met this I guy. just met him this morning, actually, yeah. Wonderful guy. He had a, just to kind of contextualize this for us, he has a reading he did for us from the Daniel Jurgen book, aforementioned book, The Prize, that's describing what we're talking about, the reaction in the United States to the oil shock, 
And this is on page 599 okay. of The Prize by Daniel Jorgen. This is our friend Will Laney reading a passage. All right, let's hear it. Long gas lines became the most visible symbol of the embargo and America's most direct experience of it. As reports and rumors proliferated, Americans became prey to their own commodity panic, not for laundry detergent or toilet paper, but for gasoline itself. Motorists who had been content to drive until the gauge was virtually on empty now hastened to top off their tanks, even if it was only a dollar purchase, this contributing to the lengthening gas lines. It was prudent. No one wanted to take a chance on there not being any gasoline tomorrow. At some stations, purchases were allocated by a day of the week and whether the motorist plate ended in an even or odd number. Motorists waiting in line an hour or two with their engines running and their tempers rising sometimes seemed to burn more gas than they were able to purchase. In many parts of the country, gasoline stations sprouted sorry, no gas today signs very different from the signs advertising discounts, which had been so common in the preceding decades of surplus. The embargo and the shortage it caused were an abrupt break with America's past, and the experience would severely undermine Americans' confidence in the future. Now people are paying attention to the Middle East, I guess. One person in particular that we want to highlight is paying attention to the Middle East. This guy, this man is a Hollywood actor turned politician, the 63-year-old governor of California, a man by the name of Ronald Reagan. So with that preface, Crespo, let's move ahead five years. You are listening to CENCAST, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters from Tampa, Florida. So for those that might be a little lost in, in history, let's maybe for this episode explain what the Iranian hostage crisis is and maybe do it in the simplest terms. You got it. But first, we have to go back again briefly, briefly to 1953. Okay. Okay, here's the timeline. So August 19th, 1953, the U.S. instigated and supported a coup that overthrows the democratically elected Iranian prime minister, a fellow named Mohammad Mossadegh. This strengthens the rule of the Shah, or the king, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Now, you know, almost a monarchical ruler. The coup allows him to consolidate power. Now we're moving forward to 1978. He's in power this entire time. And there's a popular uprising in Iran that, that overthrows the Pahlavi dynasty and drives Pahlavi out of the country. And many reasons for this. He was, you know, th there, there was certainly an inequality within the country. Much of the country was impoverished. Much of the country didn't really see the benefits of his rule or the job security, the food security, that the top of his government. Yeah. Um, this went on for 15 years almost. It went on for a very long time. It went on for 15 years. And November 4th, 1979, of course, revolutionary students belonging to the Muslim student followers of the Imam's line. It's the name of the group, Muslim student followers of the Imam's line, overrun the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. So these students, Joe, did they support the revolution? That's right. They supported the revolution. They, they, were, they felt that, the students in particular, felt that the Shah had a, a secular system of government and they were looking for an Islamic system of government in, in concert with Islamic rule. And now something else happens late in 1979. So after November, this would have been around what, like December? So taking a page out of the, 
The Ghosts of Christmas Past, right? Let's, let's go to the Ghosts of Christmas Past. Christmas night, 1979, the Soviet Union drops a massive airlift of troops and equipment into Afghanistan. The Soviet Union had been eyeing Afghanistan for a long time, and now a sudden shocking invasion. It was the first commitment of Soviet troops outside of Russian territory or the Warsaw Pact since World War II. How did this lead into what's known as the Carter the Carter Doctrine. Well, why don't we just read what the Carter Doctrine is. Okay. So, so State of the Union Address on January 23, 1980, President Carter announces this, this new way of thinking about uh, the Middle East and about foreign policy. And, and here's what he said, okay? Here's my Carter, uh, a lot of people laud my Carter impression. Oh, I can't like wait it. to hear it. An attempt by any outside forces to gain control of the Persian Gulf will be regarded as an assault on the vital interests of the United States of America. And such an assault will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. We are improving our capability to deploy U.S. military forces rapidly to distance areas. We've increased and strengthened our naval presence in the Indian Ocean, and we are now making arrangements for key naval and air facilities to be used by our forces in the region of Northeast Africa and the Persian Gulf. All these efforts combined emphasize our dedication to defend and preserve the vital interests of the region and of the nation which we represent. So, all that to say that uh, the United States is going to commit firepower mm -hmm. and potentially troops and potentially combat to defend and protect the Persian Gulf region. And right. what we say now is security and stability in the Middle East. Right. And then it ties into our national security interests mm -hmm. and all those things. Now, uh, now I, I will say maybe, you know, maybe weaving in and out a little bit here, the Nixon Doctrine, the Nixon Doctrine, which was developed uh, around the time of the oil crisis, um, the Nixon Doctrine was a reliance on allies in the region. And the big ally in the region was Iran. You know, Kissinger, um, call, you know, Kissinger, Nixon's national security advisor, referred to Iran as our cop in the Middle East, privately referred mm -hmm. to as our cop in the Middle East. So, so now you go from, from Iran being our, our, our key ally and a, a reliable partner there to now being a real concern. Going back to the Iran hostage crisis, yeah, the hostages were held for 444 days. That's exactly they, right. They were released January 20th, 1981. Reagan is elected. Mm -hmm. So many people believe that this crisis ended President Carter's chances of re-election and basically ended his presidency. The Reagan people certainly believe that. Yeah. I don't think that is historically accurate. Uh, there was a lot working against Carter. There was an economic downturn. He couldn't get proposal for a national health care system approved. Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts challenged him in the 1980 primary. But nonetheless, though, the Reagan administration was really focused on Iran. After this, yeah. So maybe we need to set another table a little bit on that part of that story. Well, yeah, so, so the, the administration, the Reagan folks were really concerned about the Islamic Revolution that it was going to spread throughout the Middle East. But the Islamic Revolution had just thrown out the pro-U.S. Shah mm -hmm. and then ushered in an anti-American Ayatollah Khomeini. That's right. And, and here's, I think, Crespo, what, what people listening to this should understand about that and, the, and about the Iranian Revolution. The way the Reagan administration thought about this, the great tragedy of that situation was not the Iranian hostage crisis. Mm -hmm. It was the fact that we'd lost this reliable partner that I just mentioned. Right. And, you know, Iran under the Shah was an executor of U.S. foreign policy in that part of the world. So, wow, that's, that is quite a reliable partner. For two decades, for more than two decades. We lost influence in Iran, obviously. And by extension, the Middle East. So 
Reagan comes to power, his Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberger, is concerned about this. So, and yeah, rightly so. Rightly so. And, you know, coming out of this, we were in a little bit of a wilderness in terms of the Middle East. You know, remember, Crespo, we didn't have troops in the Middle East. We didn't have a command there. No. We talked on episode one, we have a U.S.-based command, the REDCOM, Readiness Command, mm -hmm. right here in Tampa. And it's responsible for all aspects of planning for rapid deployment of troops and equipment into the Middle East in a crisis. But that unit, REDCOM, as you call it, that was they were not focused only on the Middle East, correct? No, the unit had the same responsibility for Africa. And there was no unified command with responsibility to look at, study, partner with the Middle East. REDCOM had no forces at all. It's a hollow headquarters. The idea being that forces identified to be ready for rapid deployment would fall under REDCOM in the event of a crisis. So now, with that bit of a setup, let's move yeah. on to the Reagan administration because... This is a really fascinating story. The establishment of CENTCOM. This was the first unified command established in over 35 years. So let's talk about how that decision came to be and that, how, how that decision was made. Yeah, it actually was a series of big decisions. So let's get into it. You are listening to CENTCAST, the official podcast of the United States Central Command, America's premier warfighting headquarters from Tampa, Florida. We're in the Reagan years. Yeah. Reagan is elected in a massive landslide in 1980. Yeah. And he is sworn as the 40th American president on January 20th, 1981. That's right. The same day the hostages were released. Right. Yeah. Coincidental, <laughs> maybe? Okay. The Middle East was, for the reasons we just outlined, a top strategic priority. And the hostages come back to the United States. They're released on that same day. They come back in the first few days after he takes office. Now, let's remember what we said about Reagan. What did we say about Reagan? We said, we, we talked about, he was worried about the oil prices in the Persian Gulf. Yep. He was thinking back to 1973 and the oil shock, okay? Rick Perlstein's book, The Invisible Bridge, covers this, this matter. Reagan needs a foothold in the Persian Gulf and the Middle East as a hedge against that sort of thing, against yep. a, a blockage of the flow of oil, and we had no forces there. Further to the east, you know, you've got Pakistan and Afghanistan are threatening to create a power vacuum along the southern border of the Soviet Union. Right. And you've got the Soviet Union in, in Afghanistan. And remember, Reagan was just about the last of the Cold Warrior presidents. He was the last true Cold Warrior. You know, he was really worried about the Soviets taking advantage of the Iranian Revolution and invading Iran, and from there, controlling the Middle East. At the time, two-thirds of the world's oil reserves were in the Middle East. So there's a real concern that Soviets would invade Iran and the U.S. would be on its back foot in a World War III against the Soviets in the Middle East. So now, this is the joint staff, the right. leaders of, of, of the U.S. military are looking at this. And the Navy and the Marine Corps, their recommendation is let REDCOM, Readiness Command here in Tampa, carry out planning and exercising. But if there's a World War III, if there's a deployment, mm -hmm. pass operational control of forces to UCOM, European Command, once they're deployed. So we go back into this OPCON take on sort of conversation. So you're saying that if there's an emergency, mm -hmm. REDCOM would get the forces. Readiness Command, yeah. That they've been planning and exercising into the Middle East. Yeah. At that point, UCOM European would then Command. direct the European. forces from there. Yeah. So get the forces into theater, and then UCOM, a unified combatant command, would control the fight. That's right. Sounds like kind of a bad idea. You don't have that, that unity of effort and, and some of those economy of force 
principles of war that we sometimes talk about. That's what Caspar Weinberger said, that it's a bad idea. And that's not going to get it done. Well, well, well I think Caspar Weinberger's other concern was you don't have a command that's looking at the Middle East all the time, mm -hmm. like, like we are here, like this building is that you and I are in right now, that's looking at it all the time and, and, and thinking about these problems, thinking about threats, deployment. It's like, okay, you come, you're going to pick up the ball and run with it once we get forces in there. So January 9th, 1981, the end of the Carter administration, mm -hmm. Reagan is president-elect. He's not in office yet. But, you know, at this time, the Joint Chiefs are looking at this. The Joint Chiefs say, let's make a subordinate headquarters underneath REDCOM that can focus on rapid deployment to the Middle East. So that's an idea that's in, in the works before Reagan. Okay. And then Weinberger comes into office. Reagan comes into office. Weinberger said, let's put some energy behind this. Okay. March 1981, so the first few months, really the first few weeks of the Reagan administration, the Rapid Deployment Joint Task Force, RDJTF, RGDF, is officially activated. It's on the first, the first day, 1st of March 1980, and it's based mm -hmm. here at MacDill Air Force Base under the U.S. Readiness Command. Its first commander was a fellow named General Paul, was a fellow named General P.X. Kelly. And here's his own words. There's a quote from him. It's the first time that I know of that we have ever attempted to establish in peacetime a full four-service joint headquarters. This is the only group in this country whose current full-time activities focused on joint and combined combat operations for limited contingency operation. So the aim of the RDGTF was really that of deterrence against a possible Soviet or, or a Soviet proxy invasion in the Middle East or conflict among the states of the area, some kind of subversion or insurrection within the state like the Islamic Revolution in Iran, and thereby helping maintain regional stability and the Gulf oil flow westward. So in the event of a Soviet invasion of Iran, RDJTF was to deploy air, sea, and ground forces to deter or at least delay progress, right? Now, Weinberg is not even satisfied with that. He's not satisfied with that. He argues the Soviet actions in Afghanistan must be answered boldly by creation of a single unified command for all of the Middle East. The Joint Chiefs demurred. They said, look, these, all these little commands... RDJTF, Readiness Command, and European Command can share their responsibility. And Weinberger, he wasn't having it. On April 24th, 1981, the Secretary of Defense, Casper Weinberger, he instructs the Joint Chiefs of Staff to submit a plan for transformation of the RGDF, Rapid Deployment Joint yeah. Task Force, to a separate unified command focused on the Middle East within three to five years. And then April 1981, he said, we're doing it this way. Right. We're, not, we're not doing it your way, we're doing it this way. And he gave him a timeline, three to five and he years. He gave him a timeline. In, 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 we should say, in retrospect, Weinberger and the Pentagon overstated the threat of the Soviet Union at that time. I mean, the Soviet Union was bogged down in Afghanistan. It would have been very hard to some sort of World War III in Iran. Limited capability, older equipment, you know, power projection was, was limited. Okay, all those things, that little caveat. Okay, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they respond very quickly. <laughs> this is how quickly... I told you, April 24th, right. 1981, he instructs the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They submit an interim response on May 18th, 1981. This response assumes that the predominantly Muslim nations of Southwest Asia are going to oppose the sudden assignment of their region to a powerful new U.S. military organization. So they support the gradual establishment of a unified command over a period of a year and a half. Yeah. Okay. Now, that's still incredibly Pretty rapid. Quick. Yeah. So it's agreed. From the summer of 1981 to New Year's Day 1983, RGDF would evolve to a unified combatant command on MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa. There were three stages of this evolution, just like there are three phases to this podcast we're recording right now. 
But for this discussion, they don't really matter, I don't think, Crespo. Um, bottom line is it would take 18 months to make this happen. Weinberger's happy. Reagan was happy. You're happy. Yeah, all the services are happy. All the services are happy. Uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps. They were to establish component headquarters on McDill Air Force Base as well. At that time, what was the area of responsibility for this new command? After much back and forth, it was 19 countries. Why don't you read them to us? Because you have them right in front of you. Read them to us okay. in alphabetical order. All right, here we go. Bahrain, mm. Djibouti, Egypt, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Kenya, Kuwait, Lebanon, Oman, Pakistan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and the UAE. That's a lot. It was kind of the same sizes that we have now, yeah. but obviously different countries in there with the uh, weaving in of African countries. Yeah, and we're almost done. We're almost done with this podcast. Bear with us. But one maybe point that needs to be ironed out at the time. Alexander Haig. Alexander Haig is a, is a fascinating figure in American history. He was Kissinger's deputy, the National Security Council. He was Richard Nixon's final chief of staff. He survives Watergate, and he gives this very well-known press conference after Ronald Reagan is shot on March 30th, 1981, where he says, I'm in charge. And actually, it wasn't clear that he was in charge, but he basically seemed to appoint himself as the president while Reagan was in the hospital. Okay, but we're not worried about that right now. Alexander Haig, you know, he's a, a retired four-star general. He really wanted Israel part of CENTCOM, and he did get Weinberger on board for that. But the Joint Chiefs, their view was, look, including, including Israel would complicate this new command's ability to build relations with the Arab nations. And keep in mind, the war plans for a Soviet invasion of Iran relied heavily on the Gulf Arab nations for basing an overflight. We needed them because we didn't have troops in the region. So that was a, like a pragmatical decision. And yeah. it remained that way all the way until September of 2021. Now Israel is part of CENCOM. Final, just a couple of components in our timeline here. November 12, 1982, they named the Future Unified Command the United States Central Command, U.S. CENTCOM, and its commander, U.S. CENT, U.S. Commander-in-Chief Central. Yep. Uh, on November 19, 1982, a command center for U.S. CENT begins operations at McDill Air Force Base. And on December 2nd, 1982, the president formally approved the establishment of U.S. CENTCOM, effective 1 January 1983. So 40 years to the day almost. Yeah. So we've covered a lot of ground. We covered a lot of ground. We uh, hopefully, I mean, geez, we covered, uh, you know, a very rich period and we kind of hit the highlights and hopefully maybe contextualize some of this for the listener. Absolutely. So I can't wait. Now that we've laid the ground for, for the history and the establishment of CENTCOM, where does the story take us from there? Can't wait to hear about it. Can't wait to hear about it. And next episode, episode three, we're going to, we're actually going to go to, we're going to go back in time to World War II because the American national security apparatus was looking at the Middle East and concerned about the Middle East for a very very long time and that started in World War II. Can't wait to hear it. Thanks for having me again. <laughs>